Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 127 of Dogcast Radio. In this show, Debbie Connolly and Nick Jones discuss nature versus nurture in response to a listener's question about her Shiba Inu. They are uh, stubborn at times. Um, And yes, there's all the ones I've seen have had uh, prey drive to some extent, but they've all been extremely trainable as well. Surely with the appropriate training, these dogs can lead uh, biddable, fulfilling lives off lead. Plus, we have the Dogcast Radio News. But before all that, we have an interview with author Bonnie Church, focusing on how dogs help combat stress. Bonnie knows personally the enrichment a dog can bring to our lives, and she's a life and wellness coach too. So what does that entail? Okay, well, uh, the simple answer is this, Julie. Uh, I equip my clients with the resources they need to live an abundant life. And abundant life for me, by by definition, means that they feel good, they're earning enough income to take care of their needs and their desires, they're getting on well with, with the people in their lives. And those ends are supported through healthy diet and lifestyle, healthy self-image, a sense of purpose. And so I, I help my clients to achieve those things. Yeah, that sounds great. I, I could do with you. <laughs> that sounds good. Um, okay, now we're going to sort of talk about um, stress. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we all have stress and it's how you cope with it. Um, mm-hmm. But what problems are associated with stress? Okay, well, you know, um, we're surrounded by a lot of stress triggers, and I think in this economic downturn, even more than, than mm-hmm. ever. But, uh, you know, uh, these stress triggers can be everything from a traffic jam or a relationship barrier, or a financial burden, a job insecurity, low self-esteem, dissatisfaction with where we are in life. Too, even too, eating too much processed sugary foods can create stress in our lives. And when we have this chronic stress in our life, It keeps our our, our, our adrenals pulsing out a stress hormone called cortisol. Hmm. And, uh, you know, stress can be productive in our lives, too. It's what, you know, keeps us, gets us up and going in the morning. But too much of it is where it contributes to destruction in our lives on several fronts. And and some of those assaults on us are in in the area of physical health. We do know that an excess of stress contributes to using alcohol and tobacco in excess, overeating, undereating. Um, If you were to, you know, take a microscope and, you know, investigate what's going on inside your body, you would see that stress constricts your arteries um, irritates the digestive tract, uh, creates bone and joint pain, blood sugar imbalances, impairs mm-hmm. the immune system. So it affects us physically, affects us mentally. We know stress contributes to depression, anxiety, and panic disorders, vexing thoughts, insomnia, self-doubt. It affects our productivity. You know, we know for a fact that we are more exhausted, sick more often, more distracted. But I think the deadliest effect, Julie, is on relationships. Um, stress creates relationship problems and relationship problems create stress. So, so it sets in motion a deadly cycle. Mm. And, uh, you know, it drains our emotionally, emotional energy um, reserves. And when, um, when, when it becomes a pattern in our significant relationships, it obviously keeps us from pursuing our life goals. But uh, what happens in our brain when we're communicating with one another, 
um, there's a radar in our head that is continually scanning the environment for threats. If we perceive that we're under threat, then our body triggers stress hormones to prepare us to either run or to fight. And by the way, Julie, I've loved listening to your show for a number of years now. And one of the Hmm. things about you is you just have a manner about you that is so non-threatening. You know, you are just like one of these warm, safe places. So Aww. I was really looking forward to this interview, but that's kind of a side note. But, but when, when that radar um, that is scanning the environment for threats perceives a threat and the stress hormones are released, um, then that, that, creates, uh, they, that creates this tendency in us to want to either fight with the person that we're communicating with or run from them. And, and, it's, and it's interesting, if you kind of study this, the science of this, uh, some, un, some subconscious threats that we can perceive, and we can perceive them by the tone of voice the person is using, by their body language – but if we perceive that they are demeaning us in some way or they're confusing us or they're threatening our freedom to choose or they could potentially harm us in word or deed or they're being unfair, even if these threats are real or imagined, it doesn't matter. When we feel threatened, we respond. Mm. And our responses to these real and imagined threats are what add fuel to the fire in, in our breakdown in communication. We begin to raise our voice. We shut down, we shift blame, we go into that, all, you always do this mode, we begin to fight. Mm. Um, and then, uh, then this, what, this ha- what happens here then is the person we're communicating with, when we react to them, then they get stressed and this vicious cycle begins. So a big part of life coaching for me is equipping my clients with the tools to calm down and respond and reflect rather than to react to and rage against our stress triggers. And there's science and ample anecdotal evidence to support the fact that owning dogs can help us to manage this stress, could actually bring down our stress levels. Yeah, which, I mean, it's fantastic. And I, that's, it's, I mean, I love my dogs anyway, but the fact that they can actually help me cope with stress is brilliant. Right. Yes, yes, I agree. So, you know, I mean, and, and how does, I mean, obviously we, we, we love our dogs and we, you know, we have, you know, we strive to have a good relationship with them. How mm-hmm. does that actually help us manage our stress? Well, there's a lot of ways. And I'm just going to list several of them, Julie. Um, you know, we know, number one, they, they encourage us to get out and get exercise. You know, um, yep. <laughs> actually, if I were to list what my favorite activity in life is, it's sitting on the couch and thinking. I tend yes. to be a sedentary person by nature. You know, I'm a writer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a thinker. You know, so having my animals, um, you know, I have a, a cocker spaniel poodle mix, a cockapoo named Tadpole, mm-hmm. and I've got a labradoodle named Jemima, and they need exercise. They're, you know, energetic dogs. Yeah. So I know that I go out and I spend more time walking than I would if I didn't have them. Mm-hmm. And exercise is like incredibly important for stress management and, and overall health. But um, the dog, dog ownership, pen ownership in general, but dog ownership specifically can build our social network, which is also helps us to manage our stress. You know, when you're out walking with your animal, you inevitably get people approaching you and talking to you that wouldn't talk to you ordinarily. Yeah, so, yeah. so that those who are lonely in life, it increases their network of friends and acquaintances. I'm sorry. And it, so this helps with their stress management. Um, we know that pets stave off loneliness and provide unconditional love. You know, I think about my mother. 
She was a caretaker. She's eight years old. She was a caretaker for my stepfather who had Alzheimer's and he was actually bedridden in his last few years. And she lost him and she lost her dog, Molly, within a relatively short time of each other. And I remember her calling me, Julie, and she said, you know, she said, Bonnie, this house is so lonely. There is just no one else breathing here but me. And that just so touched my heart so deeply. And so I cleared with her the possibility of her, you know, helping her find a dog from the local shelter. And, you know, it's amazing to me how these things work out. But I got word from our local shelter that um, a litter of Pekingese poodle mixes there were, there were Pekingese poodle Pomeranian mixes. So what wow. do you call that? Pomapoo? I don't know what you call it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but someone was bringing them to the local shelter, and my husband and I went to see them. And no kidding, the moment we laid eyes on this, the only male puppy in the litter, we knew he was the one. He was kind of standing at the bars of his cell. <laughs> he had these Aww. long eyes and adorable underbite, and he was gazing at us longingly. They had named him Simba because he looked a little bit like a lion. Hmm. And when when my husband, Michael, picked him up, he just kind of hung on us, hung on us with his paws. And we just knew this was the one. So um, we called mom from the shelter and described Simba. And she said, yes, get him. And we brought him home. And she she lives in another state, but she came down with her sister to pick him up. And she named him Louie. And he's now six years old. And Louis has become this like loyal lap dog mm. who he's and he's only about 15 pounds um, in weight, but he has a big dog bark. So he's kind of a lap dog, <laughs> our dog. He's just so perfect for her. And yeah. I see what joy he brings to her life. And mm. he's, um, you know, he travels with her. He's either on her lap or lying next to her um, on the floor holding her hand. He <laughs> puts his paw up and she holds Aww. hands with him. But, you know, I mean, this is like he's filled such a void with her. And this is such a comfort to me as the daughter of an aging, aging mm, parent. So mm. he brought the breath back into her home, Julie. But oh, that's but, a uh, lovely way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we know we know that there is um, that pets um, dog ownership can actually help to control blood pressure. Um, there was a, a study done on some hypertensive New York stockbrokers, by the way, hmm. who got dogs and were they, when they um, they didn't have animals and they did a study with them and they got some of them dogs and some of them did not have dogs, and they found that the ones with um, with the dogs were they were lowering their blood pressure naturally just with pet pet um, ownership. Wow! So um, I'm thinking. In light of the recent economic downturn and the Occupy Wall Street movement, it might not be a bad idea for the local shelters to set up camp on Wall Street today. But, you know, the study to the table. But um, and and we know, too, that they improve survival rates among heart attack victims. There was a a study done through um, the University of Pennsylvania Center for the Interaction of Animals in Society. Now, that's a mouthful. And they showed that among 92 victims of heart disease, that um, the ones who had animals sur- were um, survived at least, uh, you know, a significant number out-survived the ones who didn't have pets. So, mm-hmm. so there's all this, all this evidence that pets reduce stress and keep us healthier. Um, and, and, you know, something, it's, it's interesting to note that Pets can sometimes reduce stress more than people. Mm. Um, you know, I as a life coach know that the power of talking about, you know, with people about their problems and helping them, you know, solve them and, and come up with an action plan for, for you know, going through a process of change in their life. And having a good friend who's a good listener mm. can, can help you manage your stress. But they, some research has indicated that spending time with a pet is 
even helps even more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wonder about that. And I was thinking that, you know, part of the reason for that is that a supportive friend or even a supportive spouse is great. But uh, when you're when you're with your animal and you're you're processing some of the challenges in your life, and they're not judging you, they're just loving you. Yeah, <laughs> just yeah. totally, fully. They're not trying to, you know, s- suggest to you, uh, you know, a solution to your problem. They're just there. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you know ex- that is exactly what I was going to say because you know if I, you know, I mean, my husband is lovely and very supportive, and but if I moan to him and you know I'm having a problem with this and I'm you know and he'll say, well, why don't you try such and such or or we could do this or you know and you, and you end up saying, I don't want uh, right now. I don't want you to make plans. I just want you to listen and sympathize, you know. Exactly. And that's what your dog does. He doesn't sit there going, we could try this or we could try that. Because right at that moment, you just want someone to go, that's awful. Ah, oh, you know. And that's right, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and there's also, you know, something I think, I think um, also pets give us an acceptable outlet for physical contact, you know, mm. petting them, grooming them. And we know that physical touch just calms us down. It, it, it helps to regulate our cortisol levels. And so, you know, touching our, our pets as we're talking, we're thinking through our problems. It is, it's, it does, it helps us to manage that stress mm-hmm. and it helps us to bring some clarity to our thought process. But um, I think they do other things too, Julie. They bring order to our day. You know, you can't kind of yeah. loll around in bed till 9 o'clock if the dog needs to go to 7 a.m. <laughs> you know, but this provides a sense of purpose. You know, for people who are depressed, you know, they lack motivation to get up and do what they need to do that day. An animal gets you out of bed in the morning. Uh, And, you know, we know that animals bring uh, families closer. Um, They reduce conflict and tension and and they increase play among family members. Um, There there was even a study done where they found that, that some couples have been observed to talk to each other through their pets. <laughs> and, you know, I, when, I, when I heard about that study, I realized, like, Michael and I kind of do that sometimes, too. <laughs> you know, I mean, we'll just kind of be talking and, and I'll be petting the dog and I'll, I'll be like, you know, uh, you know, go tell daddy. You know, we call them big yes. We, get really, we really get downright goofy. I mean, it'd be embarrassing if there was a video camera <laughs> talking to our dogs or kissing our dogs. You know, we, we, we love our animals, but I do think that we do talk to each other through our, our pets. Yeah. yeah. But, it's- uh, it, it's yeah. interesting because in, in your notes that you sent to me about yourself, you mentioned you, you have um, a granddaughter and two grand dogs. Yes. And it's, it's funny because my husband, I mean, I've, I've dragged him over to the dog side, but he, he didn't start off as doggy, you know, as dog loving as I did. And um, when we got Buddy, you know, and I'd say, oh, and I'd refer to him as daddy, you know, and I'd say daddy this and daddy that, you know, and, and, uh, and we already had our daughter anyway. But he'd say he'd keep looking at me and going, I am not a dog's daddy. Right. And then we'd kind of overcome that because I just wore him down and kept saying it. He was like, okay, okay. And then when, I, when Jenny was 10, she had her own dog as well. But when I said, well, you're a dog's granddad now. Oh, well, that was, that was another level. Yes. That is a, well, you know, my husband kind of went up through those, those, those changes as well. So, yeah. Now he's very happily the father of two, you know, two dogs and the grand dog of two. So, yeah. 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 But, but, but in, a, in a real way, you are there fulfilling that um, purpose. You know, you educate them, you look after them, you, you take them to places. You know, you, it is that kind of nurturing role, isn't it? So I think we're, in, we're entitled. 
I think so too. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, also I, I've noticed too, raising my family, that dogs teach children responsibility. You know, they yeah. teach them how to nurture, they teach them compassion, loyalty, and empathy. So I'm really happy that my granddaughter Vivian has her puppy Lily because she's really learning. She's um, her dad's from Central America, her mom's American, but I, and so she's bilingual. But she's really trilingual because she's also been raised with this dog. And she's learning how to communicate <laughs> with a dog. Aww. So, so I think you know, I I think that um, you know they help us to teach our children, and on some level that helps us to manage our our stress and. In this age when both parents are often at work, Julie, um, it's nice to have an animal that, that the, the children can come home to, to welcome them home and make them feel secure. So, Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, it teaches you about your children because um, I suppose Jenny would have been 10 and a half when Star was spayed, her mm-hmm. dog was spayed, and mm-hmm. she's a little Bichon and she didn't take the pain well at all. And I don't blame her. She obviously was in a lot of pain. And mm-hmm. for 48 hours... Jenny just sat on the sofa with the dog on her lap, you know, and she had water on a spoon and she was trying to get her to drink. And it yes. just made me look at my daughter and think, wow, you, you have that in you. And I didn't realize. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of preparation for being a parent. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, so that's, I mean, how else can she get that? You know, you don't get that from just an inanimate doll. You know, no. you get it from a living living creature that you have to nurture and take care of. So, yeah. But, you know, you know, it's really interesting to me, Julie. I did some, you know, study on how, you know, dogs can be trained to sense anxiety and kind of nuzzle a person or seek to be petted. Hmm. So, um, you know, so when they, when they sense that someone's under stress, they'll approach them. And when the stressed individual touches the dog, it has a strong calming effect. And, it, you know, like we said, it even lowers blood pressure. Hmm. But there are these specially trained dogs being used in some unique settings. And I was um, reading on uh, up on a dog that was in a, um, a courthouse dog. That, oh. and, there, and I guess in about 10 states in, in the United States, there are using um, courthouse dogs. And I read a, a particular account of a 15-year-old girl who was um, had to take the witness stand at a trial of a man accused of sexually assaulting her for, for a period of four years. And you can imagine how traumatic that would be. And uh, she would just freeze up and she just couldn't communicate. And they brought in an 11 year old uh, golden retriever named Rose, whose job was to help these children. Yeah. Actually that Rose had a job providing therapy in school in, Mm. in schools for troubled children. Mm. And so they brought Rose in and um, uh, apparently this 15 year old girl was able to connect with Rose and was very calmed by her and was able to, um, you know, give the, uh, the traumatic account of her experiences Mm. with, with her victimizer. But um, They've been actually dogs have been used in the states in court settings for this very purpose with children since about 2004, because uh, the United States Supreme Court had a ruling that um, you couldn't allow a victim to confront their defendant remotely by a two-way video, and they were finding that these children would freeze up when they were, you know, facing their victimizer in in a courtroom setting, which obviously. You know, probably not just children, but adults do as well. Yeah. And so, bringing in these dogs would help them to calm them and open up, you know, open them up to sharing the the details of whatever or, ordeal they've gone through. So, you know, so there's a very specific example on how yeah. a dog's ability to help us to bring down our stress levels is, you know, is is very productive in this mm-hmm. particular environment. Yeah. But yeah. but uh, 
But, uh, you know, pet facilitated um, therapies of all kind have 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 helped, you know, obviously children in the court setting, but um, even like dealing with people who are mentally ill. You know, uh, there were some psychotherapists at, uh, I think it was Ohio State, the College of Medicine at Ohio State University, and um, I was reading an account of a, a, a young man, a teenager, who was psychotic and spent you know, he had spent nearly all his time lying in his, in a hospital bed, and he was totally he had he had he was totally non-communicative, hmm. and um, you know, barely you know d- didn't respond to questions and was not responding to, to traditional therapies. But they brought in a wire-haired fox terrier hmm. <laughs> that will bring life to your journey, one. <laughs> and they brought him to his bed, hmm. and this this young man um, immediately began to show interest, smiled. Um, got out of bed and was playing with the dog, um, began talking. Oh. And um, I mean, this is, this is a, you know, a, an actual example of, um, mm. uh, you know, an animal, be- animal being used to bring healing into someone's, you know, life. And, and yeah. this was a turning point for this young man. Yeah. And and it, it, he helped to emotionally un, un, get on. Un, he was uh, emotionally unlocked by the effect of this dog being in, his, in 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 you know in his room. And and it actually, he began to respond to therapy at that point. And was discharged. Oh. So there's lots of examples of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, children, well, autistic children. There's oh. another example. Um, Go ahead, Julie. Did you have a question? No, I, okay. I, I, no, I was, was going to say what I really like about this is sort of you feel this calming effect with your dog. You know, you can tell they're good for you. And we have lots and lots of anecdotal evidence, you know, but also the studies back it up when you do, when you do a sort of um, a more clinical trial and test of it. Yeah. There really is a physical um, effect going on with dogs, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. Mm. And and we know with children with autism, you know, children with autism have an, they have an inability to communicate and to form social bonds. And we know Mm. that dogs helped help to calm them and increase their ability to concentrate and communicate. And yeah, there's, there's lots of studies going on um, right now. I think um, the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development and the National Institutes of Health, are, they're um, embarking on lots of studies to see the effect of animals on human behaviors. So, yeah. but, but even without these official studies, like you say, we know our pets are special. Mm. They're non-threatening. They're non-judgmental. They're welcoming. They're accepting. They're attentive. They don't talk back. They don't criticize. <laughs> they don't issue commands. Yes. So, they give us yeah. something to care for, you know, mm. and worry about and be responsible for. We, they make us feel needed and wanted. So, you know, no doubt about it. Our, our, our own pet ownership is, is, testifies to, you know, how, how special they are. Yeah, you know. definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Now, um, you 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 are sort of dedicated to helping people, and you recently wrote mm-hmm. a life coaching book, didn't you? Yes, I did. So, yeah, yeah, can you tell us about that? Yeah, the title of the book is Coach Lydia's No Nonsense Guide to Getting Off Your Butt, Out of Your Rut, and On with Your Life. <laughs> Again, I need this. <laughs> okay. My co-author, Lydia Martinez, is um, a specialist in getting off your butt. I definitely have to defer to her when it came to that section. <laughs> But she's um, she's the director of an international international diet and lifestyle program called the TLS Weight Loss Solution. She's a fitness trainer, a fitness specialist, 
And she and I were also creative director. She's the creative director, and I was a co-author of a life and family wellness program called TLS Shape Up. And um, this book was our most recent project together. And it is a life coaching book. It's not a book that's meant to be read cover to cover. It's more of a, a mentor than a book. And it helps our readers to identify areas in their lives that they need to work on in order to live a life more abundantly. And it gives them an action plan to move them from where they are to where they want to go. And um, we also do seminars and workshops and group coaching to support the principles of the book. But um, but Lydia, actually in the book, uh, the sort of the backdrop of the book is her story. Hmm. Um, and it has, and, and, and a dog was definitely part of that story. But what drew Lydia and I together in our creative endeavors is that we were both raised in families where there was mental illness and domestic abuse. So we understand implicitly the effects of stress on one's life. And yeah. um, ch- children raised in homes like this are, are subjected to what I call emotional terrorism. You know, they say children raised in war zones are are more stable than children raised in areas where there's terrorism because where there's terrorism, you never know when disaster is going to strike. So children in those environments are kind of like in a, you know, on constant alert trying to figure out when it's safe and when it's not, you know, with, mm. with their ill parent. And so... Um, so that's kind of what drew us together um, is like a desire to really help people who are stuck because of issues that they developed in the past to kind of overcome those issues. And, you know, we're, we're different. We're very, very different. I'm a baby boomer and Lydia's a generation Xer. I, Xer, I guess that's the generation she's from. Mm-hmm. I'm married. She's not. I'm a person who loves the solitude of my mountain home. I live in the North Carolina Blue Ridge Mountains, and she loves urban energy. She lives in the Washington, D.C. area. Mm. But, we, we, but we have that in common. We both implicitly understand the damage chronic stress can do to you. Mm. And mm. also implicitly understand the importance of getting a grip on life, deciding what you want, and taking action to move forward. But, but as I was saying, Lydia... Uh, her remarkable story is kind of the backdrop of the book. Um, she, at age 27, was homeless and carless, and she was sitting on a curb with her faithful Dalmatian dog, Buddy, oh. by her side. So Buddy was an incredible comfort to her. Yeah. She loved him dearly. And it was on that curb with Buddy by her side that Lydia decided to turn around her life. Mm-hmm. And so she decided she needed to make um, some changes and head in a different direction. And from the point of that decision, um, within 10 years, she had gone from having no car to driving a Mercedes-Benz, wow. uh, no home to living in an upscale neighborhood in uh, you know Maryland area. Uh, she went from being 30 pounds overweight to being incredibly fit. Now, certainly we'll send you a, um, a copy of our book, Julie, so you can see just how fit she is. Yeah, excellent. But, you know, sadly, Buddy has passed away, and that was, that was a real traumatic time in her life. But he was, he was her faithful companion through that transformation from mm. being homeless, sitting on a curb, to being prosperous and doing so much with her life. So, so um, anyway, yeah. so... So that Aww. that's that's my co-author, and she she's she's the one who makes this book very special. Yeah, and I guess you also have that love of dogs in common, then. We do, we do, mm. we do. <laughs> Sometimes we think we love dogs more than people. 
It depends on the people, I think. The dogs are generally always okay, but the people can can vary. Right, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's been really fascinating, and thank you for that. Where can people find out more about you online? Okay, I have a website. Um, www.alifenow.com mm-hmm. and a life now is all one word and Lydia has a website lydiamartinez.com and um, Martinez is spelled M-A-R-T-I-N-E-Z mm-hmm. but it's lydiamartinez.com so we have websites our books are available through our websites and you can learn a little bit more about us there yeah, yeah. Well, I was reading earlier, um, and I'm not, I'm not quite at this stage, but it, it was about menopause. Oh, and, you okay. Know, and so I'm not quite there, but you know, I'm, I'm leading up to there, I imagine. And um, and it was interesting. So we're saying you need to get that weight off, and I'm right, okay, yeah. And I, I did read that article and sort of think, yeah, you've persuaded me. I'm going to do it. <laughs> so good. Uh, if I can help you in any way, Julie, I'm a friend. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, you know, I'm going to turn to my dog first of all and say, come on, motivate me to get you out and walk. <laughs> Yes, go for a walk and calm down. That'll that that'll go a long way for melt for to melting off that mental punch. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Cheers, Bonnie. Thanks ever so much for that. Okay, Julie. Thank you. So many times I get off the phone with a Dogcast Radio interviewee and think that we would get on so well in real life and just wish that we lived nearer together geographically. But thankfully, the magic of the internet can keep us connected with anyone in the world. And I found inspiration at Bonnie and Lydia's websites, to which we have links on the Dogcast Radio site. Many law schools encourage students to counteract their stressful and competitive academic lifestyle by spending time with a dog. Hello and welcome to the Dogcast Radio News Desk. I'm Nick. And I'm Kate. Dogs can work in many different roles, and a set of stamps recently released in the U.S. celebrates some of these. The stamps show a guide dog, a therapy dog, a military tracking dog, and a search dog. The stamps cost 65 cents each, so they are of a higher denomination than most ordinary netters will need. And if you think that our working dogs, particularly the military war dogs, deserve a better tribute, you can sign the U.S. War Dogs Association stamp petition at the uswardogs.org site. Well, one working dog is heading for a well-earned retirement. Uggy, the 10-year-old canine star of The Artist, is apparently getting to an age where he can't cope with the long days on set. So, although he may take on one or two less demanding projects, in the main, he'll be chilling on the couch at home. But fear not, because waiting in the wings to carry on the family business is Uggy's younger brother Dash, who has already worked as his brother's stand-in. And talking of dogs in films, Toto from the movie The Wizard of Oz is about to be immortalised as the official state dog of Kansas. Ed Trimmer has introduced House Bill No. 251 to make the Cairn Terrier breed the official dog of the Sunflower State. The state already has a state reptile, the ornate box turtle, a state animal, the buffalo, and a state insect, the honeybee. So far, 11 other American states have an official dog breed. Maryland has the Chesapeake Bay Retriever, Pennsylvania has the Great Dane, North Carolina the Plothound, South Carolina the Boykin Spaniel, Massachusetts the Boston Terrier, Alaska fittingly chose the Alaskan Malamute, New Hampshire the Chinook, Louisiana the Catahoula Leopard Dog, Texas the Blue Lacey, Virginia the American Foxhound, and Wisconsin the American Water Spaniel. 
And if you missed any of those, you can find the full list on the Dogcast Radio website. Meanwhile, in the state of New Jersey, a Cairn Terrier was busy saving his owner's life. Tony Del Rosso was watching football and eating cashew nuts whilst lying back on a recliner chair when he suddenly choked. With no warning or chance to cry out, Tony passed out. His teenage grandson, Jerry, was in the same room, but initially unaware there was a problem. Luckily, Tony's dog, four-year-old Teddy, knew that Tony was in trouble, and his frantic barking caused Jerry to check his grandfather and then perform a front-facing version of the Heimlich maneuver. Tony praised both Jerry and Teddy for saving his life. And in Chicago, it was a dog who had a miraculous escape from injury. Video footage on the internet shows a man entering an elevator in an apartment block. Unfortunately, his bulldog is distracted and fails to follow him in, and the elevator doors slide closed, trapping the leash. As the elevator rises, the dog is pulled upwards off his feet, and in the elevator, the lead drags the shocked man's hand down, slamming it against the floor, causing a broken wrist. He is clearly panicking as he frantically pushed buttons to try and stop the elevator and get back to his dog. Head in hands, he waits for the slow descent, fearing the worst. Happily, when the lift door opens, the man discovers the leash has snapped and the dog is unharmed and being looked after by one of his neighbours. And that's all from us on the Dogcast Radio News Desk. Goodbye. A study of 2,500 adults aged 71 to 82 showed that those who regularly walked their dogs had more mobility inside the house than the non-pet owners. Dogcast Radio listener Sarah Wilkinson wrote to express her enjoyment of Debbie Connolly and Nick Jones's discussion of dogs on beds and to pose her own question to our experts. Debbie is a dog and cat behaviourist who also treats goats, pigs and other pet livestock and has numerous published articles and media appearances including Dog Borstal and Britain's Most Embarrassing Pets. Nick is a master trainer with the Guild of Dog Trainers, also a proud full member to the Canine and Feline Behaviour Association. He has also given a number of interviews with the BBC on dog behaviour and dog training related matters, as well as writing for Dogs Monthly, Field and Rural Life and Animal Health and Happiness magazines. And, as you will hear in this interview, Debbie's cat makes his presence felt, or rather heard. We've had an email from Sarah Wilkinson. And um, she said, I really enjoyed your latest podcast, particularly the interview with Nick and Debbie. They make a good team. Well, she doesn't have to work with you, but that's her opinion. Um, (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) And wondered whether you could have a regular spot with them debating a listener's question each month. So she says, I've got a start of a 10. How much can you train a dog to behave in a way that's not typical for his breed? The reason for my question is that Taffy is a Shiba Inu. And everything I've read has said not to trust him off lead due to his strong prey drive. He came to us when he was two years old, so we've not been able to train him on this from the word go. So there's quite a few issues there. There's the, the breed mm-hmm. and the age. Um, mm-hmm. He's now getting pretty, pretty reliable around the house and garden, but I wonder how much improvement I can ever expect when there are other distractions around, and she would be interested in your views. So would I. So I'm going to... Um, go to Nick first because I know you've, you've sort of looked into the breed so Nick what what is the issue with the Shiba Inu? Well that's a nice broad open-ended question I think in essence we've we've got a couple of things going on here one is that she's been told that this is a breed you must never let off the lead uh, and that brings into debate as to whether how true that is mm-hmm. uh, and, and how closely one should follow that advice 
uh, and the other is w- what the breed is likely to do as a breed type. Yeah. And we were just saying before you were uh, going on air, as it were, that it's not a breed that's terribly common in this country. And so it even led me to my own little reference book. Yeah. Uh, a, couple of, a couple of the key points that came up on the breed is that it, it is, in fact, a Japanese breed. Okay. Uh, just rattling off some of the points I brought up. Introduced to the UK in a- 1985. Um, and it's a it's a sort of connected to the spitz type dog. So we have the Akita at the top being the biggest, with seven sizes all the way down to the Shiba Inu. Right. Now Shiba Inu means small dog, mm. and as a group, these all tend to be the same shape and colour, uh, and essentially the same style of dog. The uh, the Shiba Inu also interestingly is is often described as being very cat like in nature, especially in and around the home. Mm. So they they very rarely bark. They tend to have uh, more of a yodel. They can be used for uh, hunting, such as small game things like birds and rabbits uh, and rats in the mountains can of Japan. Be or have been, have been. Right, thank you. You uh, said can uh, be, and could still be. <laughs> could but can't. Yes, go on. Hunting with dogs is actually illegal, but let's not go there. Well, it is in the UK, but I mean, is it in Japan? Yes. Well, exactly, but that wasn't clarified in that statement, was it? Very well. It's like, I just like, follow that up. This is like a Radio 4 quiz show, isn't it? It is. When you get me started on hunting, yes, don't get me started. Oh, dear. Okay, so they, they, the, their history is that they have been used with hunting. Indeed, yeah. yes. And, and they're noted for being very courageous, full of spirit, making good family pets, and, and that family pet element constantly comes up. Oh. But they are strong hunters with a strong instinct for hunting, which we could say, because something that will come up a bit on tonight's interview, I, I'm sure, will be this nature versus nurture. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the hunting is in their nature, but if, if they have a lack of nurturing, or in other words, training, then they could end up self-working. And that, and that can be true with any breed, I suspect. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's the the the, the main in, interesting elements that uh, came up about the Shiba Inu. It sounds like quite an an, uh, an appealing little dog. Mm, yeah, they look quite fox-like, don't they? Mm, yeah, te- definitely yeah. with that sort of reddy brown colour as well. Yeah, they they look quite a nice dog. Debbie, have you encountered Shiba Inus? Yes, quite a few actually. It, it's a breed I have a lot of a lot of time for, but then I'm I'm quite a fan of the the sort of spitz um, shape and the I mean the Japanese Akita or rather the American Akita as we should call the big ones that we like that I like now. Um, it, it's an interesting breed. They all do have, as do some other breeds, this characteristic of when people say they're cat like. They're quite, um, even, the, even the big American Akitas, we're talking about dogs who are actually quite agile, quite dainty, um, and they do tend to clean themselves up in the way that cats do. And I'm now assisted by my cat agreeing with me in the background. <laughs> um, when people describe these, uh, the Akita breeds as, as cat-like, they generally mean they do rather like keeping their feet clean, they clean their bodies, they'll often rub their head with a wet foot in the same way that uh, cats do. So the, 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 the thing with the, with the Shebas is is the last one I can think of was one that I rescued um, about six or seven years ago that had actually um, been a, quite a prolific hunter, which was the reason it was being passed into rescue and, and was retrained by me and subsequently went off to live on a farm happily ever after. Hmm. So I, I think that the, the comments made about the breed are, um, are 
certainly um, appropriate, but I don't think they're unique. There's lots of breeds who've, who have a history in hunting. There's lots of breeds who have a history of, of strong prey drive and who are described as dogs because of the hunting behaviour that should not be let off the lead. I mean, you could look at Siberian Huskies in exactly the same way. So I don't think that the characteristics are unique to this breed. Mm. And I actually think these breeds are actually quite good fun. Um, they're a little... Uh, undemonstrative body language wise some trainers do struggle a little bit with working with the Akita breeds because they 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 tend to not see the subtleties sometimes um, but they are breeds that I have a lot of time for um, the Shebrinos yes the, the, I've trained a few over the years I've rescued a couple I think they're quite good fun they're, they're quite loyal um, they are uh, stubborn at times um, and yes there's all the ones I've seen have had uh, prey drive to some extent but they've all been extremely trainable as well mm. it's funny you but, say that about the, the subtlety of their body language I'm, I'm sorry about that noise in the background Tiger's looking at himself in the mirror mm. Um, mm. and obviously I don't know if he's shouting at himself or admiring himself he will shut up in a minute oh, one yes. second Tiger that's, that's it's, funny it's I'm Tiger. doing the same thing <laughs> Yes, but you're quiet about it. Thank oh, you. Yes. Thank you, Target. Yeah, sorry, go on. It's funny you mentioned the, the subtlety of their body language because I think I've only met one. And we went to a caravan site, pulled up, and there was a dog sitting tethered outside the caravan. And my daughter was about, I don't know, 12 at the time. She said, oh, can we go and say hello to the dog? So I said, well, I'll go and test the dog first, you know, and I'll be the brave one. And if it bites me, that's my fault. I'm not going to let you go first. So... I sort of said hello to the dog, got nothing back, no growl, no wag of the tail, nothing. So went a little mm. bit closer. And this dog gave no indication whether mm. it was going to be friendly or not. So in the end, I just squatted down and said, come here and saw whether it would come to me. And it kind of lumbered to its feet, although it was a small, neat dog, but it kind of lumbered to its feet and came over like, oh, all right then. And, you know, and sort of submitted to being said hello to and then went and sat down again. So there wasn't, there weren't the usual signals that you get from a dog. No, they are there. They're just a lot more subtle. And, and even when you look at the, the bigger, right up to the American Akita size, some of that is still relevant in all of that type of breed. Mm. Um, and and it, it's why owners struggle and sometimes even trainers struggle with them. But they, they are, they're fantastic dogs who tend to, they absorb a lot. They, they observe things and absorb their environment. And they, they don't necessarily suffer fools or talk to people that they don't like very much. No, no. I'm not didn't. saying that was the reason why yours didn't talk to you. I'm just saying. Mm. It didn't take to me. That was the thing. <laughs> it didn't that, take to no. me. Let's call it that. That provokes a, a little uh, thought in me and, and it is a question as well. That I wonder if that, that quietness and that absorbing the world is something that has been bred into the dog um as a result of its original japanese origins yeah yeah uh, and and i probably could be going off on a, a sort of esoteric line there but it's a, an interesting idea that if if uh, as i do anyway that we imagine the japanese to be a fairly contemplative uh uh, group of society that that in, in fact their dogs were were bred to sort of fit in with that mm. yes mm. um and and that that Sort of because I am sort of thinking of that sort of nature versus nurture thing again. Yeah, yeah. I had wondered that because I think they, they, you know, the Japanese have tended to sort of breed them to be quite quiet, haven't they? Their dogs, mm -hmm. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, to, so to some extent, that's true, but there, there's also a, a slightly shorter, and more limited history of them keeping dogs as pets in the way that way that we do. So, I'm, yeah. I'm not I'm not sure how relevant it is that mm. they bred them to be quiet to to make them easier pets. Mm. Um, I I think that like with anything uh, in the choice of breed, you know, people pick particular characteristics and put those dogs together to try and reproduce the characteristics. Mm. Um, the you know, if, if you look at at the bigger versions, if you look up to the um, you know the American Akita size. Um, you're, you're looking at dogs who they, they are kind of similar, um, mm. but you know Akitas make plenty of noise when they want to. Mm. Yeah. What What about this element then of uh, being told not to let your dog loose and to keep it on a lead? Which to me, on a welfare ele- uh, degree, it always grates with me. And admittedly, I've not owned uh, any of the Spitz breeds, so my encounters will always be through my behaviour and training work. But I, as a result, nonetheless, I don't subscribe to this idea that these dogs should be kept on a lead for life. Uh, quite unfair from the dog's point of view. And surely, and this is my question, oblique statement, is that surely with the appropriate training, these dogs can lead uh, biddable, fulfilling lives off lead. You would hope so, but I guess, I mean, I, you're the trainers, but I would guess what you really need is a good solid recall. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think it's as simple as a solid recall, no. Mm. I think that um, there are, as I said, there are very many breeds with strong prey drive, and and the the Sibes, uh, my beloved Malamutes, I've owned two Malamutes. Um, there, there are breeds with very strong uh, hunting behaviour. Even some of the gun breeds, a lot of people don't realise that some of them are, are HPRs. They're hunt point retrieved. They're not just Labradors fetching things back. And Ooh. I think that some breeds are more prone to have um, a stronger eye and a stronger hunting behaviour off the lead and the general advice is they can't go off the lead but there are plenty of examples in those breeds that do safely go off the lead in all sorts of environments however can I I think the real issue here is can every dog be trained to be safe off the lead and I actually don't subscribe to that I think that there are individual examples mostly in the breeds of the more developed prey drive where it would not be safe or appropriate to say the dog just needs more training and it will eventually be safe off the lead Mm. having said that I work with lots of and have worked with lots of dogs who've even killed other dogs never mind livestock Um, most of those ultimately have been trained enough to be safe off the lead with a few notable um, exceptions to that and those are dogs who when I say they don't go off the lead they go on a 50 foot training line one or two of them Um, and I don't believe it's anything to do with they need more training I just think for a few dogs you have to accept that should there be a sudden occurrence of a pheasant, a small dog, whatever their particular thing happens to be, that there might be circumstances with a few, a small number, but a few dogs who really should not ever have complete freedom because they cannot be 100% trusted. So it's got to be done on an individual basis? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what... Yeah, that- Sorry, okay, on. just to say, I think that's entirely true. Dealing each dog on um, dealing with each dog on an individual basis, but we are, for the for the purposes of this conversation, trying to come up with some good generalizations, if 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 there is such a thing, um, and that's partly why I wanted to bring up the question because are are we are we saying that taking the Shiba Inu for example that, that none of them should be let off the lead. Um, 
the other the only thing I could say in in going on from that is that maybe the owners always need to think very carefully whether their own experience uh, and handling skills and, and training skills are uh, conducive to owning a breed like this where they would be able to have that dog uh, under control and indeed off lead at the same time so i'm not posing an argument i'm really such asking more questions as i often do than give answers um so that's the, that's where I am on it. Yeah, yeah. What about this this age issue? Because I think that is that is um, something we've got to take into account. That that um, Sarah didn't have uh, Taffy till he was two years old. That's going to have an impact, hasn't it? Because surely it's easier to train a dog, you know, an eight week old puppy than a two year old dog. Yeah, totally. And and um, that May did did you say she took the dog on at two years of age? Yeah, yeah two years old. I mean. Mm, two-year-old is still quite young and i would be still pretty optimistic about anything that could be trained into that dog us being able to achieve it or the owner being able to achieve it so i wouldn't hold that age against the dog naturally having a dog at four months would be much better than two years and again from that point of view but two years is still pretty young in the in the grand scheme of things yeah. Well, I, I I would beg to disagree there because the the is a puppy easier to train than a two year old dog, in some respects yes, in some respects no. Hmm. I would if if I was given the option, I'd rather be working with the two year old dog, regardless of what the history is. I think there's a more formed personality, which is not apparent at eight weeks. I think that yes, you're still within the imprinting period, eight weeks old, but I would rather see the two year old dog and see who it is and what its drives are, what its what its characters like, and I would personally prefer to do that I'm saying that as in the last three years I've trained three particular dogs of age between 10 and 12 Mm. um, one of whom had absolutely serious problems in fact I arrived at the house to see the 12 year old dog and both the owners were in bandages and sticking plasters from the most recent bites and they'd owned that dog since it was an eight week old puppy Um, and and it's it's, this isn't necessarily the forum to go into into that Mm. but it's in my opinion, it doesn't bother me in the slightest how old they are. But the thing that was sad about that dog is it took about three months to get all the problems sorted. And this was a dog who they it couldn't go anywhere or do anything because of its, its serious aggression problems. They couldn't even take it in the car because if it got in, they couldn't. And oh. then they could get it out again. And, and within three months of working this dog, I got a lovely, lovely email and a picture of it down the beach, um, oh. having gone in the car to the beach. Now, the saddest thing about that story is they'd had probably four or five trainers in, in 12 years trying to work with this dog and hadn't sorted it. And the sad thing is, you know, in, they hadn't tried for the last four years for probably fairly obvious reasons, mm. but... Uh, all credit to them for still keeping going despite the covering in bandages. Yeah. Um, but what was sad was that he hadn't had the right help earlier and had lived a rather restricted um, life for uh, 12 years. So personally, um, not at the age of it honestly doesn't make any difference to me. I, I, I don't have less success with older dogs than puppies. And quite often, if I see somebody with, it, with anything up to sort of a six-month-old dog, I ask to see them again in, in six months, 12 months, whatever, mm. because I want to see who the new dog is. And sometimes they're quite different from that starting point. Yeah, that's actually very cheering that, you know, you don't have to start with a blank canvas. You You can still sort of train things in or out you well know. we wouldn't have jobs then would we <laughs> <laughs> we could only train puppies we'd be quite poor 
That's, no, I'm thinking, you know, from an owner's, from a layperson's point of view, and you sort yes. of go, well, this dog, you know, it's sort of a, a, an established behaviour. I'm onto a, yeah. you know. You can, you can teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> you can. Yeah, and I certainly agree with that phrase. And, and I get constantly asked, you know, is, is, is he or she too old to change? You know, the, the, the standard answer is no, not at all. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So, it, Sarah, shouldn't despair. You know, there is, there is light at the end of the tunnel. She's, she's going to get there. Mm. What would you? She, say? she might have to move to England to get some help. But apart from that, we're fine. Well, she might want to pay your expenses. You two could go out. Oh, you know. she she might. Where is she again? Australia. I think it was New, Ze- think it was New Zealand. Oh, well, yeah. I've, I've actually got somebody who asked me if I could go to Australia a few months ago to help her with her dog. So perhaps I could do a little trip. Absolutely. A little tour. Yeah. It, it would take at least a month to get the dog trained. <laughs> Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> and part of that would be lying on the beach, I imagine. Yes, well, it, yeah, yes. be chasing the sheep because they have a lot of sheep in New Zealand, That's don't true. they? Plenty of livestock yeah. to practice with. Yeah. Okay. On, on the beach, we could do the downstay training. <laughs> yeah, no, you're not coming, Nick. I'm going on my own. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh dear, they've fallen out already. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so. Bearing all that in mind, then that probably you two aren't going to make out to New Zealand. Um. What should she do? You know, what practical steps can she take to, you know, get this dog to a stage where he may be able to come off lead then? I think like with anything, start with basics. I don't know what the standard of basic training is with this dog, but um, people often forget the basics and go to the, straight to the problem. You know, does he walk nicely on a lead? Does he obey simple commands? Does he live in a world of nice boundaries and respect and rules? Does he listen to them? You have to start with basics before you start tackling problems because if, if you can't influence your dog in your lounge with it sitting next to you and not on a lead, you've got absolutely no chance going outside. Um, I'm a fan of long line. Um, I use either a 10 or 15 metre depending on what I'm doing and what I'm trying to achieve and I'm a great believer in long lining now this is different from extending leads which are things that um, are obviously uh, on, on a spring and therefore are constantly pulling on the dog's collar and there's a difference between when you use it and when you don't I like long lines because the dog's got plenty of freedom you're attached to the other end you can you can happily have the dog running about and, and if you buy a 15 metre one you've got plenty of room for that dog to run about and behave fairly naturally and learn how to come back and to ignore things when it's told but basics first Mm, yeah okay totally and i I agree with what debbie says and also like to add that we need to give the dog the motivation to come back and the the line as with debbie i use long lines all the time in my work uh for not just recall issues but a, a wide range of other elements but so the long line allows us to calmly reinforce the recall or indeed keeping the dog within a sensible boundary of us Um, but then we need the motivation to come back and that again actually ties back in with what debbie was saying about having the basics in place Um, so yeah it's the the long line is one aspect of it the motivation uh, and the reward for the dog to come back which could cover up that could be a conversation in itself but that also needs to be in place to give it a balanced approach yeah yeah okay i'd I'd like to um well first of all good luck to sarah with that but i'd like to widen good luck yes (laughs) i'd like to um widen the discussion really because i mean um we've we've touched on other breeds you know debbie's mentioned um, gun dogs i mean for example my um dog buddy who's a labrador was absolutely obsessed with picking things up when he first came to us he would pick up dirty laundry tv controls anything and everything 
and it drove me mad and he'd have slippers tissues anything and he'd be off in the garden with whatever he'd managed to sort of steal and it took a long time it took till he was about two to get him to be reliable and how we did that was we realized it wasn't actually the object he wanted he wanted the attention that brought him Mm. you know and I'd made the mistake of chasing him come on bring that back and so he he ran into the garden I think he got a glove and he ran into the garden and I just was so cross I shut the um French window that he'd gone through and I closed the curtains and thought right stay out there mate then I've I've had enough and he just left the glove and came and sat by the window and, and sort of cried and it was that kind of thing then that we did but I mean there's, there's, the gun dogs have these behaviours. Dachshunds can be sort of, um, they can go off down rabbit holes, don't they? What other breeds might have this kind of innate behaviour? And how likely are we to get around that? You know, you, I mean, Debbie said it's very much on an individual basis. Is that true with most breeds that you're just going to have to do it on a, an individual basis? Oh, I'm thinking of Border Collies here of being the prime. <laughs> example well just a couple of thoughts because i i a couple of examples of this um <coughs> without knowing that it would be a question came to mind mm. and yes you're right absolutely border collies because these are dogs which are bred to, to uh, uh, over successive generations to perform a high performance job um we need very much to harness that the nature of that dog to ensure that it doesn't just go out and do these things in an uncontrolled way, which could bring the dog and the owner into uh, significant trouble. But other breeds that came to mind were things like the German Shepherd dog being using its natural abilities for police work, let's say, mm. um, or the Border Terrier, uh, or man, many of the Terrier families for you know chasing small game, going down holes. Um, and, and having a variety of agricultural type jobs. Yeah, uh, yeah. You, you have a border terrier, don't you, Nick? I do, as it yeah. happens. So and I, I also have a, um, a wire-haired Vizsla, uh, yeah. uh, you know, touching on that hunt point retrieve gun dog thing. Yeah. yeah. So have you, how, how have they been? Have they had sort of innate behaviours that you've sort of had to work around? Yeah, totally. The border terrier, especially when she was young. And if, if, unsupervised or if, if i wasn't watching her closely when she was a puppy walking through the woods she would have been off like a shot after mm. squirrels and, and it would just be an endless game i know some many owners don't have a problem with that at all but i don't want to go for a walk and to lose my dog with her being obsessed for squirrels up trees all, all day long yeah but that's purely personal i know other owners that i talk to they get great joy out of the stories of how their dog's never caught a squirrel in its life but always tries mm. so it, it is a case of you, one could pose the thing well how about a scenario where the your border terrier is then chasing a squirrel but it gets so fixated it chases it across the road yeah a yeah. a car has to make an emergency stop to avoid hitting the dog upon which you know cars are involved hitting each other and then some person gets hurt so these might sound like a rather fantastic example but in fact i've heard a lot of stories like that where a dog's behavior has had a knock-on effect um onto human life yeah. uh, because that dog's nature wasn't un- sufficiently under control Mm-hmm. Now, Debbie, we've touched on German Shepherds there, and I know that's one of mm. your loves, isn't it, German Shepherds? So it is. Can, can I just comment on on that mm. the comment that Nick's just made? I, I just want I just want to add to that, really. The 
yes, I know that there are plenty of people who seem to have no issue with um, with their dog running off and randomly killing rabbits or trying to or whatever. As somebody who owns cats and who's trained quite a lot of dogs who killed small dogs running in bushes because the dog was mistaken for prey, mm. I do have a big issue with owners who encourage or allow that behaviour. I don't think it's appropriate. And it's, you know, people say, oh, well, we're in the woods and it's absolutely natural. Well, yes, it is until you're walking down the street one day and a cat runs in front of you and the dog kills the cat instead. Mm. I had yeah. a case last year where a Yorkshire Terrier, um, brown, furry, running in some bushes in a park, was killed by a slightly bigger dog whose owner admitted that when she went into other environments, she didn't have a problem with it chasing brown rabbits down through bushes and down holes. And the dog simply made a mistake. You know, they don't get the Observer's Book of Wild Animals out and start checking what it is before they go and chase it when it's brown and furry. So I I just want to comment on that because it's quite important to me. I have cats too, and it's not just cats that are killed by dogs. Sadly, dogs do kill other dogs sometimes. And you cannot say it's all right in this environment, but in a different environment... That can increase the risk to, in my opinion, unacceptable levels. Mm. Yeah. On, on to German Shepherds. <laughs> I used to say that German Shepherds were my bread and butter work because, in all honesty, as a huge personal fan of the breed, I um, I probably do or used to. It's it's evened out a bit now, but I've certainly seen more Shepherds than uh, anything else for some of the more lunging, uh, guarding, um, threatening behaviour. Um, uh, th- there's an important thing I want to say about the breed here. You know, we have uh, two, potentially three different types of German Shepherd in this country. You know, we have Germanic, we have English, and we have some working line dogs. I, I own a, a, a pure working bred dog who's as fierce as anything and would fight anything, but she does go anywhere and do anything because she's trained sufficiently well. Yes, she is. She's trained sufficiently well um, that she's she's safe to do that with. But I wouldn't recommend that for anything. Um, I, I think that we have to temper how many dogs of a breed we see with how popular that breed is because otherwise the stats are a little bit false I think you know it, it is if not the it's it's certainly in the top sort of five uh, breeds that are hugely popular in this country you've got Labradors you've got uh, Cocker Spaniels you've got Boxers and you've got uh, various Terriers so this is a breed that is incredibly versatile when I see one that's got a problem it tends to follow the same sorts of lines it tends to be a rather high drive uh, slightly over the top dog that's doing lots of charging around, barking and threatening and lunging. Do they need to do that? No, of course they don't. Um, Unfortunately, people buy the wrong type. They buy a high drive type, sometimes even a working line dog when they've got no real dog experience and they just shouldn't have one. If you're going to buy a shepherd, do your research on exactly what your base genetics are. And this brings us back to this nature-nurture thing. You know, there's a very big difference between a working-bred German shepherd and, let's say, an English-type German shepherd. The personalities, the size, the shape, the attitude, they're quite different in that breed. And it also applies to things like Labradors. The working type of Labrador is quite a different creature physically and mentally from the show type of Labrador. I've seen working Weimaraners. I've even seen some working Golden Retrievers. And whilst Goldies normally don't do a great deal for me, the working ones are incredible dogs. So that genetic start and what's in that dog's head, entirely relevant to this conversation, and people need to do their research. Mm. The, the, the shepherds are... I'll probably see more shepherds for... 
lunging, barking behaviour, but it's a bigger breed and it's an extremely popular one. So I'm not going to say they're any worse, and that's not just my personal bias. Um, I think it's a hugely popular breed, and people sometimes buy the wrong type, as they do. I have to also say, having done some stats last year, that the Labradors that I've seen who've been doing some quite serious, uh, aggressive behaviour in the last 10 years, mm. 85%, 85% of those were working bred or strong working lines in Can their breeding. Yeah. You mm. see, the, that's quite surprising because often when you, know, when you read around about sort of breeds, the advice is if you go for a, you know, if there's a show strain and a working strain, go for the working strain because they'll be more biddable. But that's... I've seen that the other way around with Labradors, hmm. uh, and, and I would actually agree with it the other way around. Mm. The show dog is quite a different dog from, you know, people, I once said to somebody who had quite a, a difficult and hyper and aggressive working bred Labrador who was lovely, but they were struggling with him. I once said to them, because she said exactly what you've just said, mm. we thought a working one would be easier to train. And I said, would you have bought a farm border collie and expected it to sit in your house and behave all day? And she said, no, a same point. Mm. Not quite as bad, but it's the same point. Yeah. Why buy a working dog that needs lots and lots of mental stimulation to be happy, relaxed, confident and the best pet? Why buy that? If you wouldn't buy a border collie, don't buy a working Labrador. Mm. I, I'm constantly surprised at how pe- many people uh, don't have the faintest idea that there are very often two different types of strain of any given breed. And th- that is one of the biggest problems, I think, that people uh, come up against, is that they have, in essence, a, a high-caliper, high-performance dog that is rearing to go th- that is being asked to actually do just the opposite and, um... well, I, I would add to that that the breeders need to take some responsibility here. I know that there are breeders of working type shepherds, working Labradors, working all sorts of things who will not sell them as pets to certain people in certain situations. Unfortunately, not all the breeders are that ethical and also some of the people who buy tell lies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in fairness, it's uh, people should be allowed to choose as to what if they do know the difference between working and, and more of a show type that um, that they need to identify what their likely usage is and, and then choose accordingly. Yeah. I, no, I, I don't think they should just be allowed to choose. I would disagree with that. As somebody who's done rescue for a very, very long time, it's not if the person comes to me and I think they're not suitable for here's two Labradors, one happens to be working type, one happens to be a sure type, I don't let them choose which one is the more suitable. If I think one is inherently unsuitable for them, they're not choosing which one they're taking. I'm telling them that they're not taking it. And I have every respect for breeders who say, you are not the right home for my working line of Labradors. Mm. And any good breeder and rescuer, because I do bring rescue into this, any good breeder or rescuer should be saying that to people. The, the only point I was making is simply from a many, many families, when they embark upon choosing a given breed of dog, if, if they go down that road, because some people will happily take on any cross hinds from a rescue centre which is a, a, a great but if somebody is looking at a specific breed um, then they need to be aware of the difference of these these two genres within that breed that's that's the point I was making they, they do absolutely they do but that's why I'm saying the breeders need to take some responsibility and there are plenty of breed rescues who do exactly that 
they, they will they will tell people because rescues aren't just full of crossbreeds, Nick. They are full of pedigrees as well. Um, they they when you're looking at this, the yes people should do their research, and yes people should try to understand which one is going to suit them best. There are some very good rescues about. There's some very good breed rescues, and anybody interested in in pursuing a pedigree breed as a pet, I always say to them, go and speak to breed rescue first. Find out the reason why that particular type of pedigree dog is coming into rescue. What are the problems? What's going wrong? Before you even think about whether it was going to suit you, find out what mistakes were already made by other people and then see if it suits you. Rescue is a good place to start to see why breeds go wrong sometimes. Mm. One of the things, that's an interesting point because I was going to say, when people, again, if they choose to have a pedigree dog, presumably it's going to be very useful for them to look at that breed's history to see you know if you want a dog that's going to just sit on the couch with you you're going to sort of want to steer more towards a, a lap dog type dog that yeah, hasn't by been, a cavalier you know. <laughs> yeah yeah is it another question then if you do choose to go down that pedigree line or if you have the opportunity in another way is it helpful to look at the dog's parents you know is it sort of um inherited like that if you if you look at the parents is that a good thing to do yes yeah. always where possible this is um and I've never heard, if you can yeah right and i've never heard sort of advice to the contrary mm. um i think the key thing again is to uh, the point i was w- wanting to make and it's it is connected but a little bit off on a tangent is much that too many people regrettably choose dogs and purebred dogs let's say on their looks rather than their function mm. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the the amount of people that I've seen with, let's say, huskies. Uh, let's take that as, uh, and I love to breed, but that people are taking them as stunning looking dogs, which they often are, but then can be completely unprepared for the characters one, uh, of that breed once they bring it home. Uh, I agree. People do choose on looks. I mean, it, it's a classic. I, I, I can often, when people bring up asking, um, I mean, I, I, the, the best one I ever had was somebody asking me about, um, they started off with uh, an English setter. Um, would that suit me? We went through their lifestyle. I'm not sure it would. And then we went to, oh, uh, German uh, short-haired pointer, German long-haired pointer, German wire-haired pointer. As, and I could hear the pages. And I said, are you in the gun dog section of the Observer's <laughs> Book of Dogs? Yeah. Um, yes. And, oh, I like the look of this one. No, that I, I completely agree that there are people. I, I think we're all guilty of that to a point. You know, I love my mm. shepherds because I like yeah. the look of a shepherd. It's a natural-looking dog. And I completely get that people see a particular type of dog and are driven to want that type or general shape or whatever. I completely get that. If it's unsuitable for them, then it's unsuitable. And that, that I just want to mention very quickly here, because Sibes are, are, are one of the things that sadly ends up in rescue too often. But one of the things I want to talk about is is we're back to puppy farming now. Unfortunately, when people buy these pedigree puppies, if good breeders are turning them down and rescues are, I've met lots of people who've gone and bought one anyway. Mm. And their only option then is to buy from either a breeder who doesn't give a toss and simply wants the money and will sell them one anyway, or they're forced to go to a puppy farm outlet. And then we're back to two things. The genetic... Uh, makeup of that particular dog potentially in breeding even sometimes it turns out to be a crossbreed and the terrible circumstances in which it's been reared in before you get it it's not socialized and it's had no learning process so that people unfortunately will still want what they want not all of them but there's a few people Mm. who turned down by rescue and good breeders still go and do it anyway Mm. 
Yeah. And and then, of course, if they're purchasing from those sorts of outlets, then they'll be inheriting a dog with a great deal of a lack of nurture. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, I'm keen to sort of bring that word nature and nurture in where possible today um, to, to to offer examples of where the dog may be good, inverted commas, or bad, inverted commas. Mm. Well, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, you know, the, yeah, if, if they are forced to, well, not forced, if they choose to buy from a backyard breeder or a puppy farmer because they've been turned away by the decent breeders, they are taking on a dog whose start was appalling. And, mm. and no socialising, no proper handling, no exposure to noise, dogs, what, kids, whatever, means that there wasn't any nurture to start with. And unfortunately, they're more likely to have a problem. Never mind the lack of health testing. They're more likely to have a mental or emotional issue. Yeah, mm, yeah. I think we, we're going to have to do another chat sort of on the right way to get a dog in the first place, I think, because that's where we're sort of heading. But, I mean, to wrap this one up, um, would it be fair to say then, think about what the what your breed's history is before you go for that breed but would it also be fair it seems that you're saying that if you do for whatever reason end up with a dog who seems to have these innate behaviors that you find a problem that you have a good chance that if you persevere and train that you're going to get a dog that you can live with yeah and to ensure that they are choosing fundamentally a breed that uh, once they've put aside all their likes of uh, how a dog looks, is to ensure that the dog is likely to be within their ability to uh, control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think overall, um, most things these days can be trained. At least, and, and I, this is an expression I use a lot with clients. Even if you can't take away the intention, you can control the result. Mm. That's an important issue. Yeah, mm. yeah. That's been another brilliant discussion. Thank you very much, Nick and Debbie. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Always a pleasure. I do think they work so well together. And it is, as Nick says, always a pleasure. You can find out more about Debbie Connolly at the safepets.co.uk website and about Nick at the alphadogbehaviour.co.uk site. And if you have a question you'd like Nick and Debbie to explore, all you have to do is get in touch. Research shows that nursing home residents reported less loneliness when visited by dogs than when they spent time with other people. Next month in the UK sees Crufts at the NEC in Birmingham. Buddy and I are already hard at work rehearsing with the Kennel Club's Safe and Sound team and we'll be bringing you coverage of what is at heart a celebration of the dog-human relationship in all its forms. Till then... Look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. By phone from the UK, you can contact us on 0121288. 0922. From the US, you can contact us on our American number, which is 315-849-2022. From any other country, you'll need your international exit code and then 441212880922. You can contact us on Skype 
with the ident dog cast radio that's all one word dog cast radio by email you can contact me on julie at dogcastradio.com when contacting us by email if you have the facilities please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file that way we can include them directly in our program we can accept most formats for example wav mp3 all these methods of contacting us can be found on our website which is www.dogcastradio.com and as ever the final word goes to jenny what did the hungry dalmatian say when he had a meal That hit the spot.